0: I remember the rumbling. It felt like a freight
1: train. And then I wake up feeling a swaying. The tornado tore through our small town like a giant weed whacker. You can see buildings uh, punch into the ground, uh, you know, a meter or more. This is Design Safe Radio, where natural hazards researchers strive to make our society more resilient to
0: everything nature throws at us. With us today on the 14th episode of Design Safe Radio, the show that talks about everything nature has to throw at us and how scientists are working to make our society more resilient. I'm your host, Dan Zahner from the Natural Hazards Engineering Research Infrastructure Network Coordination Office at Purdue University. We're now featured on the NSF's Science 360 Radio. Uh, Science 360 Radio is where you can go for great podcasts sponsored by the National Science Foundation. From Science Friday to the Discovery Files, it's all there. Check it out at science360.gov radio. Now, on to the show. So thanks for joining us today on another episode of Design Safe Radio. Today we have uh, one of my colleagues from the NERI Research Network, Dr. Ellen Rathjay from the University of Texas at Austin, and she is uh, the... Current co chair and founding member of the Geotechnical Extreme Events Reconnaissance Association, or GEAR. You'll hear us refer to that a lot today. And she is also the principal investigator for the development of the Design Safe Cyber Infrastructure for NARI. So, uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Ellen. Uh, it's been great working with you and looking forward to uh, sharing your experiences with our audience here today.
1: Great. Great to talk to you too, Dan.
0: The first thing I like to ask about is um, your background and how you got into uh, your field of geotechnical research. And uh, maybe there was some experiences when you were a kid or family members who really inspired you. How did you get into this?
1: It's interesting, you know. I grew up wanting to be a journalist. Barbara really? Walters, in fact, that's what I wanted to do. Um, but then when I became, when I was a senior in high school, I realized I really liked my math. Uh, calculus class a lot better than my English class. And so, uh, I talked to to my math teacher and said, "Well, what can I do with a math degree, or, or what can, what kind of career would?" Relate well to you know math and science because neither of my parents had gone to college And so I didn't really have engineering on my plate uh, or on my in my field of view And he he actually was a former engineer who decided to become a math teacher. And so he he suggested engineering and <laughs> uh, There was no I- internet back in the day. Um, so, so, you know, I I was reading things in books about what types of engineering there might be uh, oh, man. All about, And civil <laughs> engineering um, Sounded uh, interesting to me. And so, and, you know, I really connected with the idea of big projects, big bridges, and things like that. And so that's how I became a civil engineer. Um, And then, interestingly enough, you know, in terms of doing earthquake engineering and being interested in natural hazards, uh, that was precipitated by seeing the effects of a natural hazard when I was an undergraduate at Cornell University. while I was there, that was when the Loma Prieta earthquake happened in California, Oh, wow. known as the, uh, you know, the World Series earthquake that happened uh, uh, out there. And we had someone come speak at one of our in one of our classes about the effects of that earthquake, and it really connected with me. So you know, as I continued on being at my undergraduate studies and and then into graduate school, um, that that idea of being able to be a civil engineer who can help construct things to withstand earthquakes that really resonated with me and so that's the way uh, the direction that I went.
0: Wow that's that's really awesome I mean going from yeah journalism to civil engineering and just getting inspired to go into earthquakes just from that one experience really cool are you are you originally from um out near Cornell and uh, out in the East coast or where, where are you from originally? Yeah,
1: yeah I'm, a, I'm an East coaster. I'm a Yankee, as they like to say down here. in Texas. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I'm from um, Long Island, uh, near New York city. Um, and, uh, so, and then went to Cornell as an undergraduate, you know, heard about natural hazards in California. And, you know, then I went to graduate school out there, uh, and right in the thick of it. So.
0: Oh, wow. So is that how you got the, uh, the inspiration to, um, do the work that led to the founding of Gear? Can you tell us about that kind of progression? Sure.
1: You know, I, as a graduate student, actually, I was mostly uh, doing computational work, data analysis. I I uh, I just missed the Northridge earthquake. I was a master's student at Berkeley uh, when the Northridge earthquake happened, um, oh, and and they took all the PhD students down to LA to, to investigate the <laughs> earthquake. So, you know, I missed it by like one year. Um, but so I saw from all my classmates, you know, um, the, the interesting things they were looking at and, and observe when they looked at the damage down in L.A. due to the Northridge earthquake. Uh, but it wasn't until I became a faculty member at UT, um, and in 1999, they had a large earthquake in Turkey uh, called the Kojeli earthquake, and I happened to be selected to be part of a geotechnical team to investigate that earthquake. And so, uh, you know, one year into my faculty life, uh it was my first time going out to the field and seeing just some amazing destruction. Uh, massive liquefaction in the city of Adipazari. Uh we saw, you know, liquefaction effects, site effects in terms of ground shaking influenced by soil conditions. For those who aren't just, familiar with
0: liquefaction, can you kind of explain what that is?
1: Sure, sure. Um So liquefaction is a phenomenon um, that occurs when soil, that in a static condition with with no earthquake shaking, is is quite stable and and strong. But due to the earthquake shaking, it turns essentially to a liquid. And because it loses all of its strength, it it cannot hold up the buildings that are founded on it, or uh, it may actually slide into a river and cause like a, a slope failure, et cetera. Wow, And so that type of phenomenon, liquefaction, happens only in very specific types of soils, generally sandy soils, and they have to be below the water table so that all the voids are filled with water. So uh, those type of soils are the most susceptible to liquefaction, and the impacts on the infrastructure can just be absolutely devastating.
0: Oh, wow. So the actual soil itself in those areas is inundated with the groundwater that's normally stored many tens of feet or even hundreds of feet below ground in more solid areas that aren't prone to liquefaction?
1: Uh, not exactly. So the, the soil that's stable is saturated with water before the earthquake. Um, so it's not like the mover, water's moving up and causing causing it to liquefy. Uh, it's the water that's between between the soil particles before the earthquake. When the shaking happens, the particles kind of want to, rearrange into a denser configuration. you know the way if you shake a bucket of sand, it'll it'll kind of compact itself down. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the water's in there and it can't squeeze out very quickly in the time span over an earthquake shaking, you know 10 or 15 seconds, the water pressures get really large and they actually, in some ways you can think about it like pushing the soil particles away from each other. And now they no longer are can slide. There, there is no friction between the particles, and that's what gives soil strength. And so, mm. um, you've become, you become again. It becomes more of a liquid uh, than it does a solid. Wow!
0: So then, things can like sewers can float up to the surface. Exactly. And buildings so that water will sink can in. Yes. And-
1: yeah. So, so sewer sewer lines can come. You know, out. You know, you can see manholes and and the and the and the underground. Uh, pipes come up out of the ground. You can see buildings uh, punch into the ground, uh, you know, a meter or more. Uh, you can see some buildings tilt on their side um, because the, of the way the soil fails and then the, the, the building is rocking. And so it ends up, you know, kind of just tipping, tipping over. Wow. Um, so there's lots of damage that can, that can cause due to liquefaction, that can happen due to liquefaction.
0: So you saw this liquefaction firsthand in Turkey and that was... another spark to kind of keep that fire lit on geotechnical research. What happened after that?
1: Well, for me, that was um, a real eye opener to seeing what we can learn when we go out and do reconnaissance uh, after these events. So for me, being in Turkey, um, what I really saw was how much we can learn from reconnaissance efforts where we look and see what type of damage occurred during an earthquake and You can really think of it as a large-scale test that we could never do in the laboratory because we've got Large soil deposits that have been created over geologic time Um, They're not uniform. They're not all exactly the same and we can see how they respond during real earthquake shaking and so there's huge insights into real soil behavior that we can get from these efforts. And so that really what's initiated a lot of the reconnaissance I've worked, work I've done um, through gear and, and over the, over the years. Um, It is interesting to to talk about how gear itself came into existence Um, before gear, which is, you know, before about 2003 or so, and this includes during the Turkey earthquake, there was, always a coordinated response with respect to the reconnaissance efforts. And so different people would go to the NSF and say, I want to go study Turkey. Give me some money. And another person would, would do the same. And NSF said, we need these people coordinating with each other. We, want, we don't want du- duplicating efforts. We don't want competing efforts. And so in Turkey was the first time that NSF said, you know, researcher A and researcher B, you guys need to work together um, towards this reconnaissance effort. And it worked out really well. And so that was uh, John Bray and J.P. Bardet were the two leads that were brought together by NSF uh, for the Turkey earthquake. Uh, After that positive experience, that's when NSF went to John Bray at UC Berkeley and said, Let's formalize this. You know, why don't you create an organization that can formally coordinate these efforts? And that was the birth of Gear, um, in you know again the early two thousands. And so, for now, for you know almost fifteen years, Gear has had funding from NSF, a very modest amount of funding, to coordinate efforts for not just the big events, but there are things to be learned from some of the smaller events. And so if you go to the GEAR website today, there's more than 50 events that we have oh, wow. done reconnaissance for in the last 15 years, uh, perhaps even more. And, um, and we have reports for all of them, which is great because in my opinion, if you go out and do a reconnaissance, um, it really isn't going to have much benefit unless you write a report and get your observations out to the broader research community. So GEAR yeah. has, a, has a, a strong mission to reporting our observations um, through reports that are on our website.
0: So what kind of observations do you take when you're on a reconnaissance? And maybe also, could you talk about how those observations and techniques for doing those have changed since you started doing this kind of reconnaissance work?
1: That's a great question. So, uh, again, I'll tell you a funny story back in the Turkey earthquake, I was using a digital camera that had a three and a half inch floppy disk that popped in and out. (laughs) For those of you who are
0: even younger than I am, who may not remember what a floppy disk is.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, it was three and a half inches square about, you know, a quarter inch thick, and you popped it in and out of your computer. And so this camera had to be big enough to put that those those discs in. And obviously, these Man, are not very those. high resolution <laughs> photos compared to what you get on the iPhone today. Uh, you know, so I came back with a stack of these uh, floppy disks with all these pictures on them. Um, so that just tells you where we started. Um, although I will say one thing that we have been doing in the geotechnical community from early on is actually having handheld GPS so we actually really? know where we were taking our observations and taking our photographs and so even back way back in the day our reports every picture would have a latitude and longitude associated with it we might have to wow. manually you know pull that off of the GPS because everything was not synced but we we realized that to get back to these places exactly we needed to have good geospatial information.
0: Would you say you might be one of the first groups to actually geotag photos? Then
1: I, I really do think we we we, we were. Um, it was a little pr- primitive, as I said, on how we were doing it, but I, I think we really were. Um, and if you look, if you again, if you go to the Gear website and kind of our our mission and our goals, it's always been bringing new technologies into reconnaissance. And so uh, originally, it was the GPS taking our tracks from the GPS um, and, and ha- knowing exactly where we went, um, and, then, and then geotagging uh, the photos. We would also take, when you say what types of data, you know, we would be looking at uh, taking measurements of say building settlement or horizontal movements, uh, ground cracking due to liquefaction for instance, Uh, in that city of Adapazari in Turkey, we actually tried to go building by building along different streets and document the level of ground failure damage to the buildings so that people then later on could come down, come through the city and do subsurface investigations to understand how the soil varied across these streets or these lines. You know, we kind of went, north-south across the city and then east-west across the city. And so you could do subsurface testing at all these locations and understand how the subsurface changed and could explain the differences in damage across the city. Uh, And really, that's one of the first times we did that type of extensive uh, damage uh, evaluation. Now, if you look at through, through, through time, I would say another watershed moment was the haiti earthquake in 2010 and so by then of course we you know we had google oh, yeah. earth again in 1999 there was no google earth um, there was
0: no well there was google but yeah, <laughs> <barely>. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, so you know we had google earth we still had our gps but now everything was synced really well with you know modern you know digital cameras but the other thing we did is we actually brought some amazing. Um, Uh, We actually brought equipment to make some measurements while we were in the field. So as opposed to just collecting the most perishable data uh, in the short term and then going back to do some, say, subsurface testing, we actually brought tools together so we could do some initial testing. We could measure shear wave velocity, say, in the top 10 to 20 meters So that helps us understand damage patterns. We brought some handheld augering equipment and penetration test equipment so we could do some testing, trying to understand those near surface soils while we were still making the observation.
0: Could you you, explain a little bit what a shear wave is for those people uh, like me who aren't geotechnical engineers? (laughs)
1: no problem so you know shear waves are you know one of the types of waves that are generated during earthquakes and they tend to be the most damaging because as they travel in one direction they're shaking in the opposite direction so that's what causes your horizontal shaking Ah, and, and causes your buildings predominantly to collapse so they're
0: traveling up and down but shaking side to side
1: yes yeah and so they're traveling up from the earth from the earthquake source in the in the earth up to the surface uh, all the time, shaking side to side. And the the characteristics of that shaking is controlled by the properties of the material that the waves are traveling through. And it tends to be as those materials get softer, they tend to make the shaking more intense and more damaging and the way we can measure the stiffness of the soil is through this shear wave velocity hmm. so the speed of these shear waves so as the as the waves travel slower that indicates that the soil is less stiff so so that it's softer and how do and so you measure
0: we- those do you have some ex- sort of excitation source and some sort of you know geophone kind of setup
1: yeah, so we, there, there are different ways to do it. The easiest way to do in a rapid setting is to set up some geophones or some you know, sensors at the ground surface, say an array of about 30. And then we use a sledgehammer or say we drop a big weight and we can look at these waves as they oh, wow. travel across the ground surface and we can use the measurements to infer the velocity structure. Um, there are other ways if you do, if you have boreholes, you can do it in a borehole, but obviously uh, in a rapid uh, framework where you're trying to do that uh, after an earthquake, we wouldn't have that type of right. borehole to work in. So. Cool. Um, so if you look at the uh, the Haiti report from the GEAR team, it's great because we actually have shear wave velocity measurements at a lot of the sites Um, We also have some penetration resistance information at many of the sites that we were investigating. And it was also great because um, they also flew some high-resolution air photos uh, shortly after the event. And so we were able to look at damage from some of this aerial imagery um, and relate that to the measurements we were making. Um, So it was really neat to, to do that at a pretty quick pace. We even had that air photo uh, data before we went to the field. So we were were very much in the fly being able to say, oh, okay, that's where damage is. We should go over there. Because often when you do these reconnaissance efforts, you know, particularly back in the day before Twitter and Facebook and and, (laughs) and all the social media, again, you kind of went there and you go, Okay, where should you know? You, you talk to people. Where is their damage? And it was all anecdotal, so you, you wasted a bit of time trying to figure yeah, out. They were worried the, about
0: the, like finding their cat and making yeah, sure their family right. is safe and their house is okay and <laughs> that kind of thing.
1: Right, and and so people don't, you know, you could say, was there liquefaction? Obviously, nobody. What knows the heck what is that? <laughs> you know, and another funny story about Turkey. Um, we spent half a day at the city hall trying to get a map of that city out of Wow. Brazil just so we could have, you know, plan our efforts, you know, today that you, you know, you just, you have it on Google Earth, no problem. So it's again, just how technology has changed. Okay, so I've told you a little bit of how things have changed between 1999 and 2010. And now in 2017, we're seeing an even more accelerated change in the use of technology. And the key is using drones that are taking photographs as well as using lidar that we can we can use on a tripod at a site. So lidar um, uses lasers um, to probe the a target, and so you can basically get a three-dimensional model of um, of whatever your target is. It could be a structure, it could be the earth, it could be um, a bridge uh, or whatnot. But with the drones, the drones will not only take Video and we've all seen, you know, YouTube videos uh, from from taken from drones But here the drones can take say 1, of a thousand photographs of an area from different vantage points and using uh, computational techniques we can take all those photos and Develop a point cloud a 3d model in the same way that lidar creates a 3d model um, It's quicker and cheaper in some respects to do it um from the photographs hmm. as opposed to the lidar although it's not quite as accurate as the lidar but what we're seeing now is that these teams that are going out uh, from gear to for, for these reconnaissance efforts when they find a site that is you know an important site to document they're now using these techniques to develop three-dimensional models of the damage which can be used in perpetuity to continue to investigate uh, and, and do research on, on these sites. You know, in the past we <laughs> might, you know, measure cracks, make some maps. These are like two dimensional, they're not super accurate. Now we have three dimensional high quality um, data sets for these failures. So we're really starting to see things change dramatically.
0: So you could use these 3D maps that you're taking to say, okay, we've got a 3D map of Mexico City now. We know what these buildings look like. We kind of know what they looked like and what they were made of before the earthquake. So then you can do an experiment using that data and match up your results with this extremely accurate map that you've actually taken of the real site to inform design decisions. That's kind of some of the work that you do?
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's very similar. Um, usually when we do um, the stuff with the drones, it's not the scale of a city. It would be the scale of one building or, you know, one hillside um, or or one, you know, side of a bridge or something like that. Um, It does get, it's a little bit more difficult to do it on a large scale and it becomes much more uh, expensive. So it's more kind of on this site scale. But yes, we've got now data. We can, you know, come back and do subsurface investigations, look at how the soil conditions vary across that site Uh, maybe do some analysis of the site, you know, simulations and see if we would predict the movements or the failure that was observed uh, in the field. So a lot of interesting things. And then the key, as I said, is that that data, you know, maybe it's used in the next year by a group of researchers and they come up with some conclusions, but if you can publish that data and make it publicly available in the long term, 10 years from now someone else may have some a new idea on how to investigate that phenomenon and they can find your data and use it. Yeah, um, exactly. So it's it that's that's all that's the key.
0: That's so now we get into, into your <laughs> your current project uh, DesignSafe.
1: Yeah, so um DesignSafe is the cyber infrastructure for NERI. Um, and we have Several goals, but one of the most important goals is to provide a mechanism for researchers to formally Publish and organize data sets that can be then used by the broader research community Uh, There have been so many examples over the years where you know people they they collect high-quality data They use it and then it's stuck in some you know flash drive, or God forbid, a three and a half inch inch floppy disk, um, and no one ever can use it again. Or maybe if someone even asks you, do you have that data? You say, yeah, it's in that box. I don't even know where it is. Somewhere in there. Um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so um, at DesignSafe, we have, and we have, you know, this overarching goal to provide uh, an online data repository uh, that not only allows you to publish the data uh, and make it publicly available, but we we want people to get credit for sharing. I mean, part of the reason people don't want to share data is they feel like, well, I collected this data; it's my data. I, I and, and no one's going to give me credit for giving it out to everyone else. Um, so, if you formally publish your data almost like a journal article, it'll have a digital object identifier, which, you know, is a, is, is the permanent digital location. Um, People can cite your data in the same way they cite your papers
0: and it really
1: makes it a scholarly contribution to publish data in the same way that we publish uh, papers. And I would argue if, you know, 500 people cite your data uh, that's probably you're making more of a contribution likely than some people citing your paper 500 times. I think it's, it's really exponential in, in terms of the research discoveries that can take place. Yeah. Because instead of the data.
0: making their interpretation of your interpretation, they're using their methods on the facts.
1: Right. The actual data. And sometimes, um, people may not even be able to do what they want to do unless they actually had the raw original data that you started with. Yeah, And so that, that really is the key. And NSF has seen this as a, as a way to move forward um, probably for the last, I would say 15 years. So, you you know, before NERI, there was NIS, the network for earthquake engineering simulation. And, and there was again, this big push for data publishing and we're just taking it on and taking it to, to the next
0: level. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And, uh, I have been really impressed with the tools that the design safe team has developed over, I mean, the really short period of time that it's, that you've been operating. It's only been three years. Or two um, just years, just a
1: little bit over two. Yeah, yeah. Just a little bit over two. And, and the key is not only do we have the data depot, but our vision is that as these data sets get bigger and larger, it's really cumbersome to try and share it, you know. I, I can't email you a terabyte, you know, file. <laughs> <laughs> nope. um, and so how can we really take advantage of these technological en- enhancements? It means we need the data to reside in the cloud, but then we need the tools that would work on those data to also reside in the cloud. And so our vision for Design Safe is to have the data there, but also the tools that can analyze that data there in the cloud. And so that's why at DesignSafe, we also have what's called the discovery workspace, which ha- it gives you access to those tools. So MATLAB to do data analysis. Uh, you can write Python scripts. Uh, you can put those Python scripts in Jupyter Notebooks, which is kind of the, I like to call a Jupyter Notebook, the electronic notebook we've been promised for so many years It finally <laughs> yeah. has come to fruition.
0: Those are so um, powerful. <laughs>
1: Exactly. I mean, it looks it looks like a you know just a document, but it's got live code. It's got interactive graphics, and and it can be pulling from the data depot. So it's really an exciting time to see how we can bring all these tools together um, to to really advance natural hazards engineering. And one one thing also that we've done to specifically to support reconnaissance data because we. We have the role at Design Safe or the mission at Design Safe to support data sh- publishing, say from lab experiments, uh, computational simulation, but specifically for reconnaissance, which is a little bit different, right? There's a there's a significant geospatial aspect. You know, I need to know where uh, I'm located to, to really make sense of those observations. So, because of that, we have the reconnaissance portal, which provides you easy access. For data sets associated with a specific natural hazard events. So, if you go to oh, the yeah. reconnaissance portal on Design Safe, you'll see that there's a map. Um, and I have to admit, I stole that from gear, uh, the idea <laughs> of having a map and, and the events. But I'm, I'm part of the gear steering committee, yeah, so I, I'm fine. allowed. Um, <laughs> but there are, there are each of the events where we have reconnaissance data, uh, there's a little pin. So, you know, we've got Hurricane Harvey. Yeah. Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Maria, lots of hurricanes, obviously. Yeah, this um, has been, been a, a great season City for uh,
0: hurricane data.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely for hurricane researchers. Not so great for the people in the, yeah. in the affected areas, but but a lot to learn so we can make it better for the next time. And so you know, we've had lots of reconnaissance teams go out and investigate in Mexico, in uh, in Florida, in in Texas, and. And now in the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, and those teams are again using these new technologies. Um, they're now working on organizing that data, and eventually that data will be made available in in Design safe and and formally published, so that not only the researchers who collected it can use it, but the broader research community can also use it,
0: and and the public too. I mean, I know I've talked to actually a lot of people who, um, you know, I've become friends with and. Uh, some of them have been actually affected by hurricanes. Things are like, Hey, you're the natural hazards guy. <laughs> like <laughs> tell me what's going on with my dad down in Beaumont, Texas. Like is does he yes. get out of his house now? You know? Um, yeah. And even,
1: absolutely.
0: Even though some of that data wasn't on design safe yet, there was um, a lot of traffic in our, our Slack channels, of uh i can't remember who developed that map but i think you know the tool i'm talking about where they were uh, aggregating social media with all of the um, yes. data from the national hurricane center and um our flood you know level measurements and all sorts of things so you could get really detailed even down to you know specific neighborhoods of right, all right here's right. where the flood is at here's where it's going to go and when it's going to recede and I mean, I'm just faced with this guy and like, Hey, yeah, your dad's in Beaumont. He's got, you said he's got three feet of water in his house. It's going to get higher between now and Saturday. He needs to get out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's wonderful. It is super amazing what we can do with technology now. And, and we've only touched on it, but you know, uh, social media, I think, uh, you know, is amazing. Mexico city within less than an hour of that earthquake happening. There were, you know, videos on Twitter, Um, showing not only the destruction, but as the buildings collapse. It's amazing that people will run out of a building and their first inclination is, I'm going to turn the video on in my phone. And then, boom, there's a building collapse. Because usually we see either the building damaged or fully collapsed after the earthquake, but we never see, like, how does it collapse? Does it collapse all at once? Does it kind of progressively move? And I was surprised, at least the... The ones that I saw that collapsed during the videos, is they they seemed to collapse immediately, just instantaneously. They looked like they were barely vibrating and then boom, they collapsed. And so I think that type of stuff is gonna help us, again, further understand uh, earthquake damage uh, so we can make the best uh, improvements as we can going forward. (laughs) Yeah, no, so Kevin Franke at BYU and Tara Hutchinson at UC San Diego. Those are yeah. the co-leaders for the gear team. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it'll be great to to talk with them because uh, you may not be aware, but, you know, in the 85 earthquake um, that happened in Mexico and there's massive damage in Mexico City. That is really it was the classic uh, example of soil conditions and low shear wave velocity soils caught enhancing shaking and ca- and really causing all the damage because Mexico City is very far from uh, where these earthquakes are happening. In 85, it was maybe 200 miles. I think in this case, for this recent earthquake, maybe it's 100 miles. Yet, they're having a lot of damage. And the only reason the shaking is intense in Mexico City is that on an ancient lake bed, and that shakes like a bowl of jello when you shake it. And um, the hills around Mexico City, almost no damage. Downtown, hmm. where it's flat on the lake bed, a lot more damage. And so, wow. soil and geotechnical engineering is is, is at the core of, of the damage here.
0: Yeah, that'll be interesting to hear about that. And it sounded like there was some some issues with getting some of that perishable data as well. They started to clean up really quickly. Mm. Um, it'll be interesting to see what uh, their findings have been on, the, on
1: yeah, these absolutely. reconnaissance missions. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, wanted to wrap up with, uh, or kind of one of my favorite things to ask people is a personal experience about a natural hazard you went through, um, or or aftermath or something that that really impacted you. I know you talked about the earthquake in Turkey, but maybe there was something that you personally experienced. What you felt, what it looked like. Um, oh, okay that kind of thing yeah, yeah
1: i can talk a little bit about haiti i mean haiti if you remember from 2010 you know the estimates are anywhere from 200 to 300 thousand deaths wow um from a magnitude 7 earthquake and um this was one of those times where you really had to just leave your emotions at the door and keep your eye on the prize in terms of doing your technical work um, we were probably one of the first teams that arrived in haiti a technical teams um you know, there were no flights going to Port-au-Prince. Uh, we had to fly to the Dominican Republic. Um, and for, fortunately, I had a PhD student who was from the Dominican Republic. So he he went with us. Um, there were no places to stay in Port-au-Prince. So his dad was in construction and knew about um, a hotel they were building in Port-au-Prince where it was you know, kind of half constructed and half still being built. Whoa. And we were able to get access where we could camp in their garden basically okay so we had a bathroom um and showers in the building but we're actually staying in tents on their grounds um so we so you know talk about we brought all of our food from the dr because we didn't think we'd be able to buy any there and we didn't really want to buy any and we didn't want to take away from people who need um we and if you know anything about the um the rivalry between the Dominican Republic and, um, and Haiti, you know, my PhD student's father was like, you must have armed guards if you're going to take my son into Haiti in this situation. And so we get, we drive to the border, the dad kind of escorts us, we're in our own cars and we get there and the, and we're met by, he arranged this, you know, like Seven guys in flak jackets. They look like they were in the army. I mean, they're <laughs> police. Oh, wow. You know, um, just a complete different experience in terms of of reconnaissance and trying to deal with all of those issues. Um, you know, and and are there still bodies around? And and just feeling, you know, there were armed guards at this construction site that were like yeah. sixteen-year-old kids, and we're like, again, are they gonna? You know, take these guns and point them at us, as opposed to pointing them out. You know, so um, just a, a crazy experience, but um, it did make you feel like you were trying to do the best that you could. And 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 after that, we actually worked with the UN Development Program to bring some of our research uh, back to Haiti, and and we did a little short course explaining geotechnical earthquake engineering. Oh, that's so great. Trying to give back a little bit to the to to the to the community so that they could rebuild better. So but a crazy great, but great experience.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today. I know you got to get going here pretty soon uh, to your next thing down there. Um, where can people find out more about you? I do, actually, we usually plug you at the end of the show, but um, find out more about gear, more about where design safe is going.
1: Great. Um. So, you know, the GEAR website has a lot of great information. So GEAR is spelled G-E-E-R. Our tag no- tagline is turning disaster into knowledge. And so uh, if you go to gearassociation.org, uh, you'll, you'll con- you know, check out all of our reports. Uh, DesignSafe, you know, designsafe-ci.org. So check out our website there. And, and again, anyone can join Design Safe and get access to the data repository, the tools, um, you know, so anyone around the globe can can check that out and and see what what we're doing there. Um, and so I just encourage you to to take a look at those websites and and you can follow all of our activities uh, through the year.
0: Great, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate the time again, and uh, we'll talk soon. Have a great day down right. there. Thanks a lot.
1: Great, thanks a lot, Dan. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Design Safe Radio. This show is sponsored by the National Science Foundation and Neri. You can subscribe to Design Safe Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please leave, please leave us a review so that we can improve the show. These also help others find our episodes on iTunes. Thanks for your feedback and support. You can find out more about Neri at designsafe-ci.org or on Facebook at Design Safe Radio or on Twitter at Neri Design Safe. Next time on Design Safe Radio, we have another amazing guest, Commander Justin Kibbe from the NOAA Hurricane Hunters. He's been flying the P-3 Orion aircraft into the biggest, nastiest storms on the planet for eight seasons now and is loving every minute of it. You won't want to miss this one.
1: Thanks for listening.